Christmas under fire. This is the season for people attacking Christmas, it seems. And for the 38 years our mission has been going, uh, we found Christmas a wonderful season for evangelism and discipleship, but inevitably there are a lot of grinches and there are a lot of scrooges and people also with very sincere motivations who have arguments against Christmas. So let's consider the extraordinary impact that Christmas can have in some of the worst of circumstances. On Christmas Eve 1914, a spontaneous ceasefire was observed across the whole of the Western Front. The Christmas truce of the First World War was an extraordinary event in the history of warfare. It initially received widespread media coverage in the New York Times of 31 December 1914, followed by British newspapers like The Mirror, The Illustrated London News and The Times, which printed front-page photographs of British and German troops mingling and singing Christmas carols, like this in the Daily Mail. Stories told in letters from trenches to Daily Mail. Snowballs and jokes with the foe. And here an historic group, British and German soldiers, photographed together. And so we have all these interesting documentations, the Illustrated London News documenting this as well. The light of peace in the trenches on Christmas Eve. A German soldier opens the spontaneous truce by approaching the British lines with a small Christmas tree. So this is from January 1915 report. And the Illustrated London News also has, with the different flags uh, in a Christmas pudding, the French government was the first to severely censor any reports on what they called fraternization with the enemy. When I went to the Imperial War Museum in, 19, uh, in 2014, it was the 100th anniversary of the outbreak of the First World War. And I was invited to Britain to give several lectures on that anniversary. And it was extraordinary because the Imperial War Museum openly acknowledged with photographs of German and British troops celebrating Christmas together what had been denied officially for decades. By the end of 1914, the exhausted armies had sought safety in trenches. In the opposing front lines, men endured the same wretched conditions, often within earshot of each other. On Christmas Eve, German and British soldiers emerged to meet in a frozen strip of mud between the trenches. They sang carols, exchanged presents from cigarettes and cigars to buttons and badges. And this has been documented now. Even the British and Imperial War Museum had this which I took a photograph of. Hate propaganda against the wicked Hun began as soon as Britain went to war. The press was full of tales of German atrocities, both real and imagined, in this poisonous atmosphere. Angry crowds smashed the windows of shops owned by Germans and British authorities interred German men in camps. It was according to a poem by Rudyard Kipling when the English began to hate. Now this is, again, an Imperial War Museum. Reports of German atrocities were often lurid and false. This included stories of mutilated nuns and butchered babies, but people were all too ready to believe them. In Britain, there was a cleansing of all things German or German-sounding. London's Coburg Hotel was renamed the Konort. German shepherd dogs had to be renamed Alsatians. German measles became Belgian thrush, and orchestras stopped playing Beethoven and Wagner. It was quite insane, and Strauss, and so on. Political pressure was brought to bear to censor all reports on the events from mainstream history books for decades. For years, this extraordinary event was known only by word of mouth from participants. They expunged it 
from the public record. The damage caused by the Christmas truce to propaganda campaigns to demonize the enemy was regarded as a serious threat to the war. In fact, the French put 500 men on trial and shot them for fraternizing with the enemy. It has taken decades to unearth the details of the fascinating events surrounding Christmas 1914. And so here's in 2009, a report in the Daily Express revealed secrets of the 1914 Christmas truce. I know it's secrets because I heard this in moth halls. I heard it from people who'd been in the First World War, firsthand from people, but I never read it in a history book. And there was no acknowledgement. In fact, I read history books denying that this had ever occurred and saying that's a complete lie and it's a fabrication, a myth. But now, a whole lot of grandchildren opening up their grandparents' tins in the attic and getting out the letters and seeing the correspondence started to publish these things. And photographs and books were produced, the Christmas truce, and all kinds of extraordinary materials like Silent Night, a moving story of horror taking a holiday. In the first five months of the Great War, over a million Europeans had already been killed in action. A million. Most of them died from artillery fire. The initially fast-moving campaigns had degenerated into static trench warfare, with a continuous front line of barbed wire and trenches running from the North Sea to the Swiss frontier. Emily Hobhouse was the most prominent campaigner against British involvement in the First World War. It was this famous Englishwoman, Emily Hobhouse, who exposed to the world the horrors of Lord Kitchener's scorched earth campaign against the Boer republics of the Transvaal and Orange Free State and the horrors of the British concentration camps in South Africa. Depicted in sketches such as these, people given no warning and their home and all of their livestock destroyed. And the British took photographs of them burning and destroying farms like these. And these are British photographs of them blowing up farmhouses, burning farmhouses, even burning churches. Here's the interior of the ruined Dutch Reformed Church in Fentersburg, burned by British forces, as you can see documented here. On the night of the 2nd of February 1902, a British column burnt down the church in Lindley. Why would they do that? This is again a British photograph of the Novels Pont concentration camp. Notice, not a tree to be seen out on the felt. And these are cold climate areas, and you've got a bell canvas tent, and you went to survive in that. And they actually had ice and snow on the ground at some times. Very bad camps. Now, here I'm showing some pictures that Emily Hophouse published with the actual subtitle she used. The grim plight of those held at the Bloemfontein concentration camp. Children at Bloemfontein concentration camp carrying water. Anna Devel and her daughter performed domestic chores outside the tent. So these are the words of Emily Hophouse on the photographs that she had taken. Orphans at Novels Pont concentration camp. Orphans, the innocent casualties of war. These are also pictures published by Emily Hobbas. Here's one, the body of Miss Borta of Ladybrunt, 18 years old when she died in Bloemfontein. It was her wish that the fear clear be draped around her chest after her death. Heisbert Johannes Vermeulen of Devetsdorp died at age 12 in Bloemfontein concentration camp. 
Blomfontein concentration camp, Lizzie van Sale. And here she's still holding the porcelain doll given to her by Emily Hoggars. Body of Jaapie van den Berg outside the tent where he died, Blomfontein concentration camp. You can understand why the British government banned Emily Hobhouse from South Africa. In fact, when she came back in a second visit, they would not let her get off the gangplank in Cape Town Harbour. She wasn't allowed to uh, step foot on South Africa. She was sent straight back to Britain. And she is the one who blew the whistle with pictures like this, because the British claimed, oh, these were refugees that they were protecting. But look at this sign. Notice to the prisoners of war. Oh, what about refugees they're trying to protect? No prisoners of war allowed outside the limits of the inner camp. The sentries have strict orders to shoot any prisoners passing in the fence by order. So she published these saying, what do you mean you protecting and housing these refugees? You're the one who made them refugees. You're the one who locked them up. And you call them prisoners of war and you shoot them if they try to escape. Emily Hophouse either drew these or commissioned these paintings of like the church that was burned down here farmhouses that are destroyed, cemeteries. And these were done by stitching. Of And you can see the originals at the Bloemfontein Women's Museum, Women's Monument Museum, the Anglo-Boer War Museum. And again, you can see mostly women and very old men and children in a terrible, stark landscape. There's a film out which I'd like to track down that English woman. In 1914, Emily Hophouse authored the open Christmas letter calling for peace. 101 British women signed Emily Hophouse's open Christmas letter, which endorsed by 155 prominent German Austrian women in response. Under the heading, On Earth Peace, Goodwill Towards Men, Emily Hophouse wrote, Sisters, the Christmas message sounds like mockery to a world at war. But... Those of us who wished and still wish for peace may surely offer a solemn greeting to such as you who feel as we do. She mentioned that as in South Africa during the Anglo-Boer War, the brunt of modern war falls upon non-combatants and the conscience of the world cannot bear that sight. Here's a typed version of the letter. Here's the actual letter and the people who signed it, very prominent individuals who were, of course, uh, slandered and oppressed for doing so. Is it not our mission to preserve life? Do not humanity and common sense alike prompt us to join hands with the women and urge our rulers to stave off further bloodshed? May Christmas hasten that day. The German mothers responded to our English sisters, sisters of the same race, our warm and heartfelt thanks for Christmas greetings. Women of the belligerent countries with all faithfulness, Devotion and love to the country can go beyond it and maintain true solidarity with the women of other belligerent nations that really civilized women never lose their humanity. Or at least that was the intention. Emily Hophouse oversaw the raising of funds and the shipping of food and medicines to the women and children in Germany and Austria who were starving as a result of the British hunger blockade. Now, before this time, navies were only allowed to blockade for weapons and ammunition. They were never allowed by the Hagen Geneva Conventions to blockade food. But the British had a hunger blockade. They were stopping food going in, not just stopping weapons. And they even mined these areas here, which is 
of course, totally in breach of the rules of the seas, to actually mine so much of the sea to prevent normal shipping of merchant uh, navies. So they were suffering as a result of the British Navy blockade. And this picture is in the British Imperial War Museum, which I saw in 2014, recognizing children starving in Vienna, Austria, as a result of their blockade. Through efforts, thousands of women and children starving in Austria and Germany because of the British naval blockade were fed by the support she was able to channel to them by neutral countries. Now, numerous ministers were proclaiming from the pulpit that the guns may fall silent at least upon the night when the angels sang. Now, although these messages were officially rebuffed and suppressed in the heavily censored media, many of the soldiers on the front line seemed to share these sentiments. Whether they heard that Emily Hobhouse was suggesting it or that some pastors were preaching it, they certainly shared those sentiments. From the first week of December, informal truces were observed by soldiers on the front line. In a letter dated 7 December 1914, Charles de Gaulle expressed his dismay at fraternization with the enemy, as he put it, where French and German troops had exchanged newspapers, recovered their dead, organized burial parties in no man's land. French General de Orban expressed alarm over soldiers serving too long in the same sector, becoming friendly with the enemies, to the extent that they were conducting conversations between lines and even visiting one another's trenches. It was already starting in December. After heavy rains near Ypres, where the Germans held the high ground and the British held the lower ground, the, German, the English troops came out of their flooded trenches in full view of the Germans who expressed their sympathy and did not open fire on their soaked and vulnerable enemy. The 2nd Essex Regiment recorded in the 11th of December in the war diary that the officers and the men of the German Saxon Corps, halfway between the trenches, exchanged food and cigarettes and chocolates and conversations. And these are some of the Christmas packages arriving and being shared. They were sharing literally what they were receiving. The Germans had great uh, wine, uh, the French had great wine, uh, the Germans may have had great chocolates, the English may have had great puddings, and so here's, for example, somebody's card signed by the English king, King George, with our best wishes for Christmas 1914. May God protect you and bring you home safe. On Christmas Eve, German soldiers began decorating the trenches with Christmas trees and candles. In fact, Kaiser Wilhelm II ordered that there be Christmas trees available for every meter of the trenches, which is virtually impossible. And the logistics involved an amount of trains that had to transport uh, cooked Christmas meals and puddings and wine and uh, uh, Christmas trees and decorations all the way along, along the front line. And uh, quite amazing. So the Christmas truce began in the region of Ypres in Belgium, where Germans were enthusiastically singing Christmas carols in their trenches. And when the British soldiers joined in singing Silent Night and then responded with carols of their own, the two sides began shouting Christmas greetings to one another. They said they finished their carol, so we thought we need to retaliate in some way, so we sang the first Noel, and all began clapping, and then they struck up O Tauenbaum, and then we sang O Come All You Faithful, and uh, most extraordinary thing, two nations both sing the same carols in the middle of a war. And that's a letter from a soldier which was unearthed years later. 
Shortly after that, soldiers spontaneously came out of their trenches and walked across no man's land to greet one another and exchanging gifts and souvenirs, swapping badges and hats even. This truth rapidly spread across the entire Western Front with over 100,000 German and British troops involved in this unofficial cessation of fighting. If you add the French troops, easily 150,000 just on the Western Front. And here's some of the cards that people left behind, like Xmas 1914, a friendly chat with the enemy. And here's some of the pictures. Now, these pictures can get quite confusing because sometimes you've got Germans wearing English hats, English wearing German hats, swapping jackets and uniforms amongst one another. It gets awfully confusing to unravel who's who. Soon, Australian, New Zealand, Canadian, Belgian, French troops joined in the Christmas celebrations in a frozen strip of no man's land. And joint worship services were held. And respectful burial services were conducted by the combatants for the dead between the lines, often with both sides taking part in the same worship services. Soldiers swapped ration packs, wine, pies, chocolate, souvenirs, buttons, badges, hats. And there are sketches of it that came through. Now here's the graphic from January 1915. Two encounters, friendly and otherwise, incidents in the French fighting line. Foes and trenches swap pies for wine. British and Germans exchange gifts during Christmas truce on firing line. Pass season's compliments. British and Saxon soldiers photographed together between the hostile trenches. The truce of Christmas. And all of these pictorial proofs of the Christmas Day truce just got expunged from the public record. And it's just like George Orwell said, disappeared down the memory hole. And they officially denied it. It ever happened. And I read history books saying it's a myth, never happened for years. And it took generations before the truth of this could actually come out. I remember hearing it uh, as a youngster from people that this had happened. And uh, then hearing the official denials of it in history books and so on. Here's non-commissioned officers with souvenirs of their Christmas Day swaps. And uh, showing the loots they got from the other side's trenches. The next day, football matches were played between the lines on Christmas Day. British officer Robert Grays wrote of the football match between the 133 Saxon Regiment and the Scottish troops. Now, doubtless, these weren't the actual ones because most people didn't have a camera there. You could get the death penalty for possessing a camera in the front line. And yet, pictures do exist uh, up there, but not too many of Christmas Day because everyone was so busy playing football and so on. The Germans won 3-2 on that occasion. The Glasgow News of 2 January reported that the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders won their match 4-1. And Royal Artillery Officer Lieutenant Albert Wynne wrote of the soccer match against the Hanoverians, the Ypres, on Christmas Day. And these have actually been commemorated on coins since by the very governments who denied these events even happened at the time. So just one time? Oh, that, that's a coin. Uh, so, so in, no, in, 2000 and, in 2014, there were a lot of things that were coming out in commemoration, the 100th anniversary of the outbreak of the First World War, and then on the 100th anniversary of the Christmas truce. And you will see even more amazing things came out of it. Commanders threatened repercussions for lack of discipline, and numerous officers ordered their artillery to open fire on the fraternizing troops in no man land. On none of these occasions did the artillery obey the orders. They were ordered to open fire. And artillery 
knew, but that's going to kill our men as well. And the officer says, you must open fire. The fraternizing of the enemy. And the artillery officers did not do it, which is a serious breach of military discipline, but they did the right thing. There are numerous complaints on record of officers shocked at the total breakdown of discipline using their points as men point-blank refused orders to open fire on their own soldiers, mingling with the enemy in no man's land on Christmas Day. The worst of these, sorry to say, was General Sir Horace Smith Dorian, commander of the British Second Corps. Horace Smith Dorian was one of the very few British survivors of the Battle of Isanwana during the Anglo-Boer War of 1879. Well, General Smith Dorian issued orders forbidding fraternizing with the enemy, and he complained that his orders were disregarded by the soldiers. Richard Sherman was so impressed by the camaraderie experience between his German regiments and the French soldiers during the Christmas truce, even exchanging addresses with one another to visit one another after the war, that he went on to found the Youth Hostel Association in 1919 to provide meeting places where young men of all countries could get to know one another. There was also a general observance of a Christmas truce on the Eastern Front, where German, Austro-Hungarian, and Russian commanders ordered ceasefires for the duration of the Christmases. Because remember, the Russians hold their Christmas about 12 days later than we do. They celebrate Christmas on the 6th of January. So on the Eastern Front, the order went out to observe the next two weeks as a Christmas truce. And that came from the top. So the interesting thing is on the Western Front, it was spontaneous in spite of the officers. When the Eastern Front, it seemed to have come from the top down. The officers on both sides said, uh, unless the enemy opens fire first, you to take no hostile action uh, during Christmas, either ours or theirs. And both sides observed it. And here you even see Russians and Germans and Austrians dancing together, which is funny. In the snow. Numerous French and British officers were court martialed for participating in this fraternizing with the enemy. Whole units had to be pulled back from the front and sent to other fronts when they displayed reluctance to fire on the enemy that they'd just celebrated Christmas with. Numerous artillery units began to only fire at precise locations at prearranged times to avoid sending casualties and even send messages across the line saying, So sorry, but we've got to open fire this time, this afternoon, if you could just avoid this area and so on and so forth. And they did this mutually. There were many incidences of soldiers firing high and ineffectually that was reported. Now on Easter Sunday, the truce was attempted by German units in 1915, but they were suppressed by British artillery fire. In November 1915, a Saxon unit briefly fraternized with the Liverpool battalion and conducted burial services together. In December 1915, there were explicit orders directed by Allied commanders and elaborate procedures made to forestall any repeat of the previous Christmas truce. They ordered multiple artillery barrages throughout Christmas Day to suppress any such attempt. But even the multiple artillery barrages ordered along the entire front line throughout Christmas Day by the British were not completely effective. A number of truces were observed on the Western Front even on Christmas 1915. Notice what makes it immediately apparent this is 1915, not 1914 is both sides of helmets. There were no helmets in uh, the f 1914 because both sides thought the war was coming over soon. It's only after 1915 that they saw the need to have helmets. Just an interesting point. You can immediately tell the date just from that alone. On some sections of the Western Front in 1915, carols and gifts were exchanged between British and German troops. And there was at least one football match with about 50 soldiers on each side. That's quite a football match, recorded in 1915. 
Sir Ian Calhoun of the Scots Guards was court-martialed for defying orders by maintaining a short truce to bury the dead between lines on Christmas Day 1915. But because he is related to Prime Minister H.H. Asquith, his punishment was commuted. So he was going to be shot by firing squad for taking part in the Christmas truce. German attempts to observe Christmas truces in December 1916 and 1917 were rebuffed by British artillery barrages. Recent evidence has come to light, though, of a successful Christmas truce in 1916 between German and Canadian soldiers near Vimy Ridge, where they exchanged Christmas greetings and presents. The Canadians and Germans visited one another's lines on 25th of December 1916. And here's even a story of Christmas Day 1916 dug out of some grandfather's case in an attic. This is what it looks like today. Like a lunar landscape, the artillery so changed the topography that you can still see the craters, even a hundred years later, caused by the bombing. Here's a Christmas miracle, the true story of the 1914 temporary truce. And stories, anecdotes coming out again from people's private correspondence and recollections. Now, numerous famous authors like C.S. Lewis of the Narnia series fought on the Western Front. And J.R.R. Tolkien is born in Bloemfontein, by the way, who wrote Lord of the Rings. He fought on the Western Front. And A.A. Milne, creator of Winnie the Pooh, fought on the Western Front. A Christmas truce memorial was unveiled in Frelingen in France on 11th of November 2008 at the spot where on the 25th of December 1914, the Royal Welsh Fusiliers played football with the German 371 Battalion and the Germans 121. So here you see the, the English, the Germans, the Belgians and the French commemorate their Christmas 1914. And all kinds of memorials and officers and uh, reenactors, military historians. Now, I saw this when I went up to Ypres uh, in 2014. Uh, there were memorials, but this one actually was in 1999. Some people had put up memorials uh, to the Christmas truce that they'd observed. So this is 85 years later. Some survivors came and they brought the footballs as well as a reminder you wonder if that cat is one of the great-great-great-great-grandchildren of Felix or Nestor and some of the cats that crossed the lines between the French and the German lines. Uh, the khaki chums, these are the Australians who came to uh, lay some wreaths, a little Christmas tree and uh, footballs. Now you can immediately tell these are German trenches because the Germans did their trenches in curved lines and lined them on the inside with uh, wood. And you also notice there are planks. They had a, a drainage system so that the water could drain, uh, so it was a lot more efficiently built. The British trenches were not as uh, well constructed because the British were continually convinced that they were only temporary and they were going to have the big push next week. And so they didn't bother to build drainage and things like that. And you can see they also went at sort of right angles. Now, the reason why you wouldn't have your trench in the straight line is if one bomb lands in a trench and it goes laterally, it can cause massive damage and casualties. Whereas you're limiting the damage by having it either curve or go at right angles. So the British tended to have right angles type trenches, whereas the Germans had more um, curved. Here's Langemark. 
the German cemetery, war cemetery in Belgium, commemorating the many who died in Belgium. From Isaiah 43, verse 1, I've called you by name, you are mine. All gave some and some gave all. It's very serious in Britain every year, the 11th of November, Memorial Sunday, and the Moths Memorial Order, the Tin Hat, which started in South Africa, at the going of the sun in the morning, we will remember them. So here are commemorative services, especially in 2014. And notice the football always comes along. Here's British and German, Scottish troops coming together, and they had commemorative soccer matches uh, in 2014 to mark this between the same units, or even though, of course, it'll be many times down descendants or great-great-grandchildren of those who took part, and some memorials of how over a football they were reaching over and shook hands. So this also explains why Europe takes the football very seriously. It's considered like an alternative to war, and uh, certainly a better alternative to war. And you can't say that no bloodshed these days, because especially the British fans seem to uh, often get into punch-ups with the fans of the other side. But still, it's pr preferable to artillery. We've got to grant them that. Well, in 2005, the French film Joyx Noël dramatized the Christmas truce in 1914 through the eyes of French, Scottish, and German soldiers in the Western Front. And it's a pretty good film. And I must say, I was quite impressed with it and with very little objections. My only objection would be, how on earth did they find a Scottish Catholic chaplain? I mean, Scotland's 96, 98% Presbyterian. And yet, I'd understand if you had a French Catholic priest. I'd understand if you had a Lutheran German minister but and or a Scottish Presbyterian. But how did they find a Catholic chaplain amongst the Scottish? I don't know how that happened. But anyway, uh, maybe they just wanted a, a Latin uh, prayer message from the chaplain. But aside from that, it's good film. Sainsbury, with the help of the Royal Legion, reenactors put together an excellent ad that I'll show just now, which uh, is brilliantly put together. I mean, the attention to detail, phenomenal uh, on the Christmas trees in 2014 as a commemoration. Now, these are actual pictures showing German soldiers trying to help a French soldier out of the mire where he was sinking in, and whole divisions disappeared in the mud. For example, Passchendaele. Uh, the British, in preparation for Passchendaele, poured five tons of high explosive on every square meter of Passchendaele across a wide front. And then when they ordered the men in, most of the men just disappeared into the mud. That so destroyed the dikes and the drainage system that not just soldiers disappeared into the mud, never to be seen again. Well, they're still digging them up now. Uh, but horses, artillery pieces, carriages just disappeared into the mud. And this officer was ordered from... Uh, HQ, consolidate, consolidate. And you respond, you cannot consolidate porridge. And there were cases like these where both sides felt more sympathy for one another than they did for the people back home who had sent them there. The poppies became symbolic because over where the men died, many poppies grew. And uh, I know in the army they often would say, pay attention or you will be pushing up poppies. Which is, you know, you don't learn this lesson or do this or watch it out Watch your step, you're going to be dead. Pushing up poppies became a term in the army because the poppies grew over these battlefields where so many generations of Europeans 
were wiped out, whole generations. And so this is symbolic of the commemoration days. So in 2014, Europe went wild in commemorating the First World War and commemorating even what their governments and history books had denied even happened. I saw this, I took these, this picture, I was just coming from the conference uh, in 2014, I saw this and asked, what is this? And they said, it's a living memorial. Now, how beautiful is this? It's uh, flowing out of the tower into the moat are these poppies. Now, these are ceramic poppies, but in true capitalist fashion, the British managed to sell these poppies for 10 pounds each. And you would buy them and you would plant them and you would collect them after 11 November 2014 to take home as a memorial. Uh, so it was, uh, it was paid for that everyone was participating. People would sponsor one or more of these poppies. And so uh, these ceramic poppies, so this was actually a self-funding um, memorial and the profits made went into helping war widows and so on. It was very well thought out, but it's as a living, breathing, growing, expanding memorial, one poppy for every British and Empire soldier who died in the First World War. Blood swept lands and seas of red. Now you'll notice some are in the air because some died in the war in the air. Somebody pointed this out, planned it very thoughtfully, and every night the people would gather as they would read out the names of those who died. Starting on the 4th of August when Britain declared war on Germany and started effectively being a world war, through to the 11th of November. Every night they'd read of the 888,000 names of those in the British Empire who died in the First World War. And I don't know what other people were thinking when they saw it, but I just saw red. Because while one can only honor and respect the courage and the sense of duty of the people who sacrificed and went into harm's way, what about the cursed politicians who sent them there and for what? And why? So, My father was in the 8th Army, a bombardier in the Royal Artillery in North Africa and Italy. And he told me of Christmas truces that took part in North Africa with the Africa Corps when he was fighting under Montgomery. And uh, how he said the Africa Corps were real gentlemen. Now, interestingly, my f grandfather was on the other side. That's my mother. My grandfather was in the 8th Army. My father was in, my grandfather's in the Africa Corps. My father was in the 8th Army. And... I remember my father telling me about how Erwin Rommel was a gentleman, Africa Corps were honorable men, Germans were gentlemen. And he would sometimes say, as you watch the different Hollywood films, he'd say, I don't believe it. I don't believe any of it. What don't you believe? He said, these atrocity stories. He said, Germans were gentlemen. These things didn't happen. I was there. Uh, we would treat one another's wounded. We would have sometimes walking across and helping one another with one another's wounded. And on Christmas Eve, we were singing Christmas carols to one another and we swapped ration rates. Now, I never read that in any book about the first, Second World War that this happened. But my father and grandfather told me about it. Now, very interesting because the stories are starting to come out now. But at the time, you get government propaganda and you get lies and you get hate. And it takes years later 
for the truth to start to seep out that, oh, there was another side to the propaganda that uh, we were receiving at the time. And now you get pictures being unearthed out of some grandparents' trunks and you start to see, well, actually, maybe things weren't quite the way Hollywood and the propagandists depicted it, where one side was all evil and our side were all angelic and we were the good guys and they were the bad guys. And Well, my father said a couple of times, I can't believe we wasted our time fighting for the French twice. And Ian Smith said to me, with hindsight, he said, we were wrong to be involved in the Anglo-Boer War on the British side, Rhodesia. He said, it was all about gold. The Boers were our neighbors. We should never join in the British fight against the Boers. He said, we were wrong to get involved in the First World War. He said, it was nothing to do with Britain. It certainly has nothing to do with Rhodesia. And why would we want to be allied to a terror-sponsoring nation like Serbia, sending out assassins, anarchists, like the one who had shot the Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife, which started the First World War. And the Second World War, he said, with hindsight, we're on the wrong side there too. He said, we should have stayed out of it. Would have been better off losing it if we'd been in. But he said, if we had to be involved, we should have been involved in the Eastern Front fighting the real enemy, which is communism. There's a lot of people who came to that conclusion that far from fighting for Western civilization and freedom, we were fighting against it betraying the whole of Eastern Europe to communism and saving the Soviet Union. So here's my father and my mother. And so my dad's perspective was a bit jarring because it didn't tally with what I was seeing on the screen in the Hollywood films. And so it's a hard thing, you know. Who do you believe? Your own parents and people you know or some cocaine-sniffing, drug-dealing, blaspheming pagan in Hollywood? Very hard to balance this up here. Yes, but that's but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the. Uh, we'll have a question on to time. My father, uh, here, m- myself and my brother, we heard that my grandfather was going to visit, and I remember my brother and I being very nervous because we wondered what on earth was going to happen because Dad and Granddad fought one another in the Second World War, so we we were wondering if there's going to be some kind of war breaking out in our home, and they embraced like friends. They hugged. They they spoke with such. Uh, joy about the time then. The interesting thing is, as my dad said, we felt more compassion for our enemy than we did for the people back home at sent us out because they knew what we were going through. The heat, the sand, the thirst, the, the environment alone. It was a battle against the elements even to survive. And, uh, the whole experience, they quite extraordinary. Well, there's another book that's come out about another Christmas encounter from the Second World War. And this is a high call by Adam Makos, they're apparently making a film on this. And uh, this is about the 379th Bomber Group uh, who were bombing Bremen. And uh, it was an American plane called the Oldie Pub. And they got shot up by a Fokker Wolf uh, over Bremen, which they were shooting up. And they went into a death dive. And they were badly shot up. Well, the pilot, Charlie Brown, after coming out of this death dive, very low, he looked out his cockpit and he froze and he blinked hard and he looked again. He hoped it was just a mirage, but his co-pilot saw the same frightening scene. This is a nightmare, they said. He's going to destroy us. They were looking at a great German Messerschmitt ME-109 fighter cruising just a few feet away from the wingtip. It was five days before Christmas, 
1943, the fighter closed on a crippled B-17 bomber for a kill. The B-17 bomber pilot Charles Brown was a 21-year-old West Virginia farmer. His bomb had been shot up in the skies over Germany. Half his crew were wounded. The tail gunner was dead. His blood was frozen over the rear machine guns. And these men, uh, everyone was either incapacitated uh, or dead. And when Browner's co-pilot Spencer Pinky Luke looked at the fighter pilot, the German did not pull the trigger. He just nodded at Brown, escorted out of Germany, and what happened next was one of the most remarkable acts of chivalry. He saluted at them. Here's Charlie Brown and there's Lieutenant Steigler. Years later, Brown would track down his erstwhile enemy for a reunion that reduced both men to tears. His encounter with the German fighter pilot is told in the higher corner. I've been through this book twice. It's absolutely extraordinary. The book explains that the aerial encounter reverberated in both men's lives for more than 50 years. The war left them in turmoil. When they found each other, they found peace. This story is extraordinary, but it's not unique. British and German troops gathered for post-war reunions, like my father and grandfather, some even vacationing together after both world wars. Douglas Bader, one of the top British fighter aces, who, by the way, uh, had lost both his legs in a car accident, so he had tin legs, as he said. Maybe they were aluminium. He and Adolf Garland, top German fighter ace with over 100 air victories behind him, uh, became best of friends because when Douglas Bader was shot down and captured, here's Adolf Garland escorting him uh, to prison, showing he's well-treated and insured because when he'd been shot down, this is Adolf Garland's plane where you see he's got the Mickey Mouse <laughs> as his symbol said he's always like Mickey Mouse. Well, uh, this is signed by both Adolf Garland and by, um, by Douglas Bader. And when Bader had been shot down, he, got, he couldn't get out of his plane. The plane was so mangled, his legs were trapped. But fortunately, he could unstrap his legs because they were fake legs and parachuted. And so uh, the Luftwaffe arranged for new legs to be sent and dropped down for them and uh, the moment he got his legs, he escaped. And <laughs> he was caught. And uh, on a number of occasions, uh, he kept escaping. It was quite extraordinary. So I remember as a youngster reading the book, uh, the first and last, uh, The Rise and Fall Luftwaffe by Adolf Garland. And uh, who writes the forward? Douglas Bader. And here's Adolf Garland and Douglas Bader, good friends later in life. They vacationed together. Their children became best friends. There's a lot of people involved in the Battle of Britain who became best friends from opposite sides. Well, here's Franz Steigler, the fighter pilot of the Meshmet 109 who let Charlie Brown's um, B-17 go. In fact, escorted him over the anti-aircraft weapons and uh, and showed him the right way because he was going in the wrong direction. All the flight panel instruments were destroyed. Now, Steigler had been involved in the Africa Corps. He had fought in North Africa. He had been involved in a lot of the battles against uh, Malta, uh, fighting the RAF. Well, here he had come back to Germany, and he was horrified to see the bombing of the cities. And when he saw this B-17 of Charlie Brown's flying overhead, he was refueling. And revenge not honors what drove Lieutenant Franz Steigler that day to jump into his fighter Christmas season, December 1943, 
He was not just any pilot, he was a fighter ace. One more kill and he'd win the Knight's Cross, Germany's highest award for valor. But Steigler was driven by something deeper than glory. His older brother, August, was a fellow Luftwaffe pilot who had been killed earlier in the war. American pilots had killed Steigler's comrades and were bombing his country cities. Here's a picture of his brother, August, and August besides his Yonker 88. Uh, here's in this aircraft when he got shot down doing knife, night fighting. So coming back to Germany from North Africa, Steigler saw the ruined cities and he had already shot down two B-17s that day. He was refueling, reloading his guns, standing near his fighter on the German airbase. When he heard this bomber engine, he looked up and he saw it flying so low, he wondered if the B-17 was going to land. As the bomber disappeared from view behind some trees, Steigler saluted the ground crewman, took off in hot pursuit. As he rose to meet the bomber, he maneuvered to attack from behind, and he climbed behind the bomber, squinted into his gun sight, placed his hand on the trigger. He was about to fire when he hesitated. He was baffled. No one in the bomber was firing back at him. He looked close at the tail gunner, who was still. White fleece collar was soaked with blood. He crammed his neck to examine the rest of the bomber. Its skin had been peeled away by shells. Its guns were knocked out. He could see men huddled inside the plane, tending the wounds of other Truman. Then he nudged his plane alongside the bomber's wings and locked eyes with a pilot, whose eyes were wide with shock and horror. He pressed his hand over the cross he kept in his flight jacket, and he prayed for a moment, then eased his index figure off the trigger. He could not shoot. It would be dishonorable to shoot at a crippled enemy aircraft, even if it was a bomber. Steigler was motivated not only by vengeance, but he lived by code of honor. He could trace his family's ancestry to the knights in the 16th century. He had once studied theology. Steigler recalled the voice of his commanding officer who once told him, you follow the rules of war not for your enemy, for you. You fight by the rules to keep your humanity so that you don't hate yourself and can't look at yourself in the mirror afterwards. Alone with the crippled bomber, Steigler changed his mission. He then nodded at the American pilot, began to fly in formation, so the German anti-aircraft gunners on the ground would not shoot down the slow-moving bomber. Because to get out over the North Sea near Bremen, he had to pass over these 155-millimeter or 88 anti-aircraft guns that would be in the ACAC batteries. So he escorted the bomber over the North Sea, took one last look at the pilot, saluted him, peeled his fight away, and returned to Germany. Good luck, he said. You're in God's hands. And as he watched the Meshmet 109 fighter peel away, Lieutenant Charlie Brown wasn't thinking of a philosophical connection between enemies. He's thinking of survival. In fact, it's a funny thing that as Steigler was touching his cross, Charlie Brown's hand was over his pocket Bible. He flew back to his base in England, landed with barely any fuel left. After his bomber came to stop, he leaned back, put his hand over his pocket Bible, and sat in silence. Here's some of the crew back at base. Now, this is his commander, Colonel Maurice Preston, who forbade him to ever talk about the incident. It could be dangerous for morale. Brown flew more missions before the war ended. He got married. He had two daughters. He supervised foreign aid for the U.S. State Department during the Vietnam War. He eventually retired to, Vietnam, to Florida. And here's some of the crew with some replacements of the ones who died in that bombing raid. And here's his final... Mission completed. I think they had to do 25 bombing raids and they could return to the States. Charlie Brown, the real Charlie Brown. 
Late in life, though, his encounter with the German pilot began to gnaw him, and he started having nightmares. But in his dream, there would be no act of mercy. He had awakened just before the bomber crashed. And Brown took on a new mission. He had to find a German pilot. Who was he and why did he save my life? Well, he discovered that Steigler was one of an extraordinarily select group of the first jet fighter pilots in the war. He had been part of the special hunter group running the uh, Messerschmitt 262s, the first fighter bombers in history that were operational. And Steigler was part of the dream team, uh, the uh, um, JV-44s. Here's Steinhoff. Steinhoff later became head of the Luftwaffe uh, in the new West Germany. Uh, here's the Count and Lutzo. All of these are legends. Uh, all of these top fighter aces, all of them Knights Cross winners. Uh, these were the best of the best, uh, including Adolf Garland. These were the men who were flying these Junker, um, I mean, these Messerschmitt 262s. And here's absolute um, legends, Lutzo, uh, the Count, uh, Trollof, Garland, Lutzo. These are some of the finest fighter pilots, some of the greatest numbers of uh, air victories imaginable. This Steinhoff later was terribly burned in an accident uh, on takeoff, and his face was very much plastic surgery. He later became chief of the Luftwaffe in West Germany after the war. Major Kurt Barkhorn ended up with one of the highest number of air victories, over 300 air victories. Messerschmitt 262 in action. They took out vast numbers of bombers over the air, broke them up. Phenomenal firepower, 37 millimeter cannon. And uh, so this was how uh, Steigler ended the war, flying these Messerschmitt 262s and taking out bombers over Germany in an extremely volatile aircraft because while it was well made, they didn't have the right kind of metals and were often improvising with equipment that was not ideal because they, they lacked adequate uh, metals at that stage and they often lacked fuel as well. So as I said, these were very dangerous aircraft to operate at the time. Well, on January the 18th, 1990, Brown received a letter and he scoured multi-archives in America and Britain and he attended a pilot's reunion and shared a story about what happened. Then he placed an ad in a German newspaper for former Luftwaffe pilots retelling a story and asking, does anyone know this pilot? Later, he got this letter from Franz Steigler, who's now living in Canada. Dear Charles, all these years I wondered what happened to the B-17. Did she make it or not? It was Steigler. He had left Germany after the war. He had moved to Vancouver, British Columbia, 1953. He had become a prosperous businessman in Canada. Now retired, Steigler told Brown he'd be in Florida next summer. It sure would be nice to talk about our encounter. And Brown was so excited that he couldn't wait to see Steigler. He called directory assistance for Vancouver, asked if there's a number for Franz Steigler, dialed the number, and Steigler picked up. My God, it's you, Brown shouted as tears ran down his cheek. And Brown had to do more. He had to write a letter to Steigler in which he said, to say thank you, thank you, thank you, on behalf of my surviving crew members and the families appears totally inadequate. The two pilots would meet again, but this time in a lobby in a Florida hotel. One of Brown's friends was there to record the summer reunion, and you can actually see the videos on YouTube if they haven't been deleted by the censors. 
Both men looked like retired businessmen, plumpers, sporting neat ties, formal shirts. They talked about the encounter in a light and jovial tone. The mood changed and someone asked Steigler what he thought about Brown and Steigler sighed and his jaw tightened and he began to fight back tears and he said, I love you, Charlie. Steigler had lost his brother, he'd lost his friends, he'd lost his country. He was virtually exiled by his countrymen after the war. There were 28,000 pilots who fought for Germany's air force. Only 1,200 survived. Brown and Steigler became friends. They would take fishing trips together. They'd fly cross country to each other's homes. They'd take road trips together to share their stories at schools and veterans reunions. Their wives, Jackie and Haya, became friends. And Brown's daughter said her father would worry about Steigler's health and constantly checked in on him. It wasn't just for show, she said. They really did feel for each other and they talked about once a week. As his friendship with Steigler deepened, something else began to happen. The nightmares went away. Brown had written a letter of thanks to Steigler, but one day he showed the extent of his gratitude. He organized a reunion of his surviving crew members, along with extended families, and invited Steigler as a guest of honor. And this film was also available. During the reunion, a video was played showing all the faces of the people that now lived, children, grandchildren, relatives. Because of Steigler's act of chivalry, and he watched the film from a seat of honor. And everybody was crying, not just him, they said. And these pictures were drawn by friends of the family. Steigler and Brown died within months of each other in 2008. Steigler was 92, Brown was 87. They started off as enemies, then they became friends, and then they became much more. And Makos discovered what was by accident spending a night at Brown's house. He was poking through Brown's library and he came across a book on German fighter jets. Steigler had given the book to Brown. They're both country boys who love to read books about planes. Macross opened the book and saw an inscription Steigler had written to Brown. In 1940, I lost my only brother as a night fighter. On the 20th of December, four days before Christmas, I had the chance to save a B-17 from her destruction. A plane so badly damaged it was a wonder she was still flying. The pilot, Charlie Brown, is for me as precious as my brother was. Thanks, Charlie, your brother fronts. So in the middle of the insanity of world wars, extraordinary friendships across the lines have been forged. I saw that with my own father. This is now a major best-selling book and film is coming. If they could have known what would have become of their countries, they wouldn't have fought against each other. They would have fought side by side. I heard that comment from my dad a few times. Harry Patch was the last surviving British Tommy who had fought in the trenches in the First World War. He said, I felt then as I feel now that the politicians who took us to war should have given their guns, given guns themselves and told to settle their differences themselves instead of organizing nothing better than legalized mass murder. Now, Harry Patch uh, spoke very straight that he is fed up with being abused by British prime ministers like, um, was it Brown and Major? And he said, don't use me to support your wars in the Gulf and so on. He said, I made a pact with a whole lot of other men in our unit. We would never shoot to kill. We'd never shoot uh, any other human being. We fired high. We were there. We did our duty. But we would not fire to kill um, anyone on the other side. And uh, he said, don't use me to glamorize your uh, wars for oil in the Gulf. 
Uh, so Harry Patch was a bit of an embarrassment to the British government because they liked wheeling him out as the last surviving Tommy of Fortner trenches, but he wasn't going to uh, repeat their propaganda. Thomas Paine said, he who dares not offend cannot be honest. No more brother wars. Next time we fight, it's side by side. Now, these are different posts, posts by people who were involved in the war. And who is the real enemy? Well, there are people in our societies who want to butcher those who mock Islam, behead those who insult Islam, who train their children to kill our children while we are training our children to tolerate their children. And you think of what Bernard of Cliveau, the author of On Loving God, wrote about calling people to take up arms to defend Europe against radical Islam. And yet, somehow today, today, after 900 years fighting against overwhelming odds against Islamic imperialism, saving Europe, there's a whole lot of people these days today who are doing everything to allow Europe to become Arabia, Britain to become, well, London to become Londinistan. It's bizarre that they would fight their cousins and not fight to defend against a real enemy like communism or Islam. There's so much that one can learn from history and from the Crusades and from the real enemies and from real men. And what are we getting today? Sly Magazine, speaking about having a child-free life, having it all means not having children. And then National Geographic brings out the new Europeans, how waves of immigrants are reshaping a continent. These are not new Europeans. These are Islamic invaders. And you just think how the police have changed in Britain, for example, from when you were a homogeneous country to when one is now a multicultural diversity. So now you can have stab-proof vests for age 11 to 19 from £19.99 available for the kids at school because they are being stabbed by Islamicists. And the police of promoting diversity makes us stronger, really. And this is part of the scandal covered up for decades by the British police and by the Child Protection Service. A million British girls systematically raped by Muslim rape grooming gangs where they didn't want to touch it. The Child Protection Service of Scotland, no one would touch because they didn't want to seem to be racist and be Islamophobic. And so uh, they let for decades, it wasn't just Rotherham, there's Newcastle, Bristol, all these different places, Islamic rape gangs grooming English girls who pleaded for help and the entire system refused to help them because they didn't want to seem to be racist and anti-Islamic. And so now you get, like in France, the Christmas celebrations have to have troops walking through prepared for battle because of the danger of jihadists attacking Christmas festivals. No wonder Poland is marching against stop Islamization and no more mosques and expel the Islamists and people calling for a new crusade because Dias Volt, it is the will of God to protect one's people from Islamic jihad. We've got a great Christian heritage. The stones crowd, the cathedrals crowd. If these men could get along in the middle of a world war, maybe we could make it through dinner with our relatives. Just maybe. It remains an extraordinary testimony to the power of the gospel that during such a terrible time of world war, soldiers of so many armies on opposite sides could stop fighting and come out of their trenches and embrace their enemies 
in honor of the Prince of Peace. This couldn't have been done for anything else. I mean, is there any other person in history other than Jesus Christ who could get people on different sides of the world war to stop? And so it was a Christmas miracle. I've written on this, The Christmas Truce, um, and this I produced for the 100th anniversary, and it's available on our shelves down below, and I've got some up here. We've got the article on the Christian Action website. We need to understand the context of our history. We need to rediscover the real facts, the real people, the real history, so we can counter Satan's deceptions of the nations, because wise men still seek Christ. Put Christ back into Xmas. This is the season, and that's the reason. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Any questions or comments on that? You can find it on the Reformation essay.org website. We've got it on Facebook as well. That something like that would happen today. Uh, it, were we to be in a world war now, I can't imagine there being a truce in that kind of. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to imagine now. But the difference was 100 years ago, you had a Christian consensus in Europe, whether Catholic, Protestant, or Orthodox, there was Christians ruled the world in 1914. And it just shows a very different mindset that even at a time of war, they had this commonality. When you're fighting communists or jihadists, that's not, you're not going to have that basis. So I could never, I never experienced that. But my father and grandfather experienced it. It's something to make people think about this Christmas because there are a lot of Christians who are quite negative about Christmas. But isn't it a wonderful thing that the greatest holiday of the year is about the greatest event, the incarnation, the greatest person in history who split time? Every atheist has to acknowledge Jesus Christ when he writes the date. 2020 what? 2020 years in the year of our Lord. Since our Lord split time in half, he put the river of the ages aside. He's the hinge of history. No other man, event, in history could have organized how we date time. And even though today there's an attempt to try and sideline Christ and have BCE and CE, they're still using the same years. They're not going to change the calendar system, even if they're trying to relabel it. But the fact just is, all of our calendars are organized according to the coming of Christ. That should make people think, which is why it's so quite right that we should have the greatest holiday of the year to honor the greatest man who's ever born. So when, in light of the COVID story and the lockdown and everything that's been dragged out this year, what can we say to people who say, why would you celebrate Christmas socially with other people in light of the coronavirus? Hmm. You know, Christmas is the greatest time of year in so many ways. It's where families that might be very spread out come together. It's when people are kind and friendly to strangers. It's when neighbors might go over and take baked cookies and so on to their neighbors or take it to the police station or visit the hospital 
And it's all sorts of great things that are done at Christmas time. The charities say they receive, and many ministry missions say the same, they receive more gifts in kind and money over the Christmas season than all the other 11 months of the year combined. Now, that's because Jesus Christ taught love your neighbor, love your enemy even, and to do to others you want to be done unto. So the coming of Christ, and just this Christmas story, wise men from afar coming to worship him, the shepherds coming, the angels singing. There's no room for Jesus in the inns of Bethlehem or any of the homes. And where were the priests? And where was the high priest? And where was the mayor and the town council and the elders of the city? But only shepherds and animals and some foreigners from Persia, far away they've come. There's so much to learn about Christmas, the danger of missing out on the most important thing. The people of Bethlehem missed out on the greatest events ever to take place in their history. And where's, where's the entire temple priesthood who's meant to be there for worshipping the Messiah? And they missed it. And yet there's so much that the shepherds who were at the very bottom of the social rung, they were the ones who first had the good news proclaimed to them. And there's so much about the Christmas story that breaks molds. Now, we may get used to it, but you've got to think of the Christmas story in the eyes of someone who hasn't heard it before. It's quite shocking in every way. I mean, a baby being born in a manger is not actually cute. It's quite shocking, not hygienic. It's, uh, where's the hospitality? Something's broken down that here you can have a pregnant woman turned away from the inns, turned away from the homes, having to give birth in a stable amongst animals. This is not ideal situation in the slightest. There's a lot of things showing what's wrong in a Christmas story. But it's inspired greatest sacrifice, generosity, hospitality, ever. There is nothing else. Who else, what else could possibly get belligerents and a world war to lay down their weapons? For what other reason? In history, it's never happened. It's just only Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace. Only he can stop wars like this. It's it's a very inspiring story. And and those of you who know me well know I'm not a pacifist. I believe in fighting. I believe there's a time to fight. Uh, But how wonderful that... The guns can fall silent in honor of the Lord Jesus. He, he is the one who can break the bow and shatter the spear and be still and know that I'm God. Very powerful. When this came out, there's a lot of people who called the film subversive. <laughs> but um, let it be subversive of the New World Order and the globalists in Hollywood. But it's, it's, got a, it's got a good Christian message which should make people stop and think. Funny thing is, my father wasn't even a born-again Christian at the time that he took part in. He became born-again Christian later in his life. But at the time, he still had a fear of God or respect for Christmas. And that's a great thing. But for us, we can go to hospitals. Uh, Last year, Daniela and I and others took a whole lot of gifts to children at the children's hospital. We found access to every floor, every ward, openness, strength. People are open, strangers are open at Christmas to all sorts of things, acts of kindness. It's a wonderful time for evangelism. And we can write cards which bring honor to Christ or play Christmas carols like the one we sang, which have got great Christian doctrines. So in this, especially at a time of lockdown, people have felt so isolated. To, to reach out, just the other day, I was up at Rhodes Memorial giving a lecture for the University of Third Age on Cecil John Rhodes. And I greeted someone there with a handshake, and this person started to cry. And she said, 
You're the first person to shake my hand since this lockdown began. When something as simple as shaking a hand, and these people are feeling so isolated, it's so important. I mean, what a great time to try and break this lockdown lunacy of uh, fearing a neighbor instead of loving a neighbor. So, other comments, observations? I mean, just how do you, how do you fight that? Uh, actually, many of them didn't. <laughs> this is to see someone's humanity to that extent. Yeah. They could not. Many did not. In fact, uh, as the film ends, um, many of them being shipped off to other fronts. Uh, the, the German command had to take virtually the entire Western Front, ship them over the Eastern Front and swap them around because they would not fire any more on the people. The British took a whole lot of their units and just shipped them off to fight in the Ottoman Empire and so on. They, they were no good anymore on the Western Front. It, In fact, if this had just continued a little longer, it might have brought that ridiculously pathetic water led because common sense humanity Christianity was breaking through and the high commands and the people the banksters behind him who wanted this worthless war that was destroying Europe uh, they were terrified because imagine if the people had at that point said no more and just gone home it, it could have ended the greatest disaster in the history of civilization first of all it was absolutely the worst thing that's ever happened to civilization and uh it, uh, anyway, it's what derailed the greatest century of missions and the worst century of persecution. More Christians died for their faith in the 20th century than have died in all previous 19th centuries combined. And it's the First World War that got the world derailed, or the church derailed. So uh, I think it's a wonderful thing to disobey worthless orders. When, you, when you're thinking of, for example, this coronavirus business, where they're telling you you can't even see your family members. Now, just take British propaganda. I saw some BBC thing yesterday. V-Day. You've heard of VE Day, Victory in Europe Day? Well, this is V-Day, Vaccination Day. And they've got some poor 91-year-old man who's on the, being called National Treasure because he's the first to get vaccinated. And, and he's saying on BBC, uh, they're all gushing all breathless about this excitement of this vaccine. And you get the chance to pump all kinds of things into your body. I mean, who knows what. But... Uh, and this poor man says, now I can hug my grandchildren again. Well, I've been hugging my grandchildren throughout the whole lockdown. I have no intention of stopping, and I don't see why vaccination is needed to be able to do that. What a disgraceful thing to have governments propagandizing people, to be afraid of their grandparents, to be afraid of their grandchildren, to say, you can't hug until you get a vaccine. What? This is propaganda of a high order. This is real George Orwellian 1984 stuff. Uh, but this propaganda on V-Day, nauseating. Any other comments? Um, just about the coronavirus. Um, you know, I got a test, and I, I had to get tested for my job. And I was quite nervous because you know, I've been socializing, and I haven't I was a bit nervous, but I, I was still negative. So, um, you were saying you're more afraid of a negative test than actually having it. I'm yes. sorry, positive test. Yes. I was more afraid of their ramifications being yes. positive than actually having it. But yeah, I was negative. I was quite surprised. <laughs> Only in medicine is negative positive and positive. Um, what sort of test do you have? Um, what sort of test do you have? 
and they go and scratch the back of your brains out. Um, yes. Well, Heather claimed that one vapor of your mouth is able to infect whole countries and kill millions, uh, and yet they've got to scratch at the back there, scrape to find evidence of it. It's, there's so much it doesn't gel. Um, I feel sorry for someone else who, my friend at church, she, she's been very cautious and she actually got the coronavirus. So I just don't know. Yes. And the point is, even if you test positive, it doesn't even necessarily mean you've got any symptoms. Now, the test is only 94 percent inaccurate. Yes. So most cases, you A. That's nonsense. That's right. Most, most people who test positive have no symptoms, which means they're asymptomatic, which means they have no disease, which means they're not sick. And so they've put it down that, well, he's a, the asymptomatic. That your body's fighting who knows how many viruses any day of the week without you knowing about it because if you've got a healthy immune system, um, you won't show symptoms. You're, you're coping. So the presence of a virus in your body doesn't mean you're ill or diseased. Most people haven't needed a test to tell them they're sick. Normally you know you're sick because of the symptoms. So an asymptomatic person who's got a positive test means nothing. And notice the dishonesty that they keep telling you how many new cases. It doesn't mean so many more people are sick, so many people have tested positive. But in most cases, it means absolutely nothing, except the poor guys are now socially ostracized. They're locked down in quarantine. Their freedom of movement is curtailed. So it's, it's so important for us to resist and to say no. And by the way, this film, uh, Joex Noel, goes on to how they start... Uh, warning one another, you know, our artillery is meant to open fire at that point. You can just be sure you're not there. If you want to come over to our trenches for this, and they're swapping over, and at some point, when some of the men are ordered to fire at a man, they all fire high, and uh, uh, the commanding officer is getting furious. And that happened. And that's why they had to relocate units, because the men now knew the men in the other trenches are Christians like us, or at least from a Christian worldview. They weren't all necessarily having a personal relationship with God, but they had a Christian mindset and had a biblical worldview and that changed their outlook which then makes think then why am I fighting the men on the other side that's why I said it I saw red when I looked at that tower thing yeah. because these are good men by the way when I went to Ipoh and by the way something like 80% of the British army of 1914 is buried within a 10 kilometer radius of Ipoh I went to six of the 150 graveyards, six biggest, and I counted over 64 Hammonds on the walls. Now, when you've got a name on the wall, it means they couldn't find the body. Because most of the victims of First World War were artillery victims. So if they've got a grave, they buried the person, and they've got a grave and a headstone, the name. When the name's on the wall, it means they couldn't find the body. And so when they went into the British and Commonwealth War Graves Commission archives, computer. We saw 480 Hammonds died in the First World War in combat. 480. It just boggles the brain. And you think how many children and grandchildren they would have had, and how Europe committed autogenocide. It was the most insane event ever in civilization that great Christian nations could be conned into fighting one another. And who benefited? Communism, later radical Islam, secularism, atheism. But Christianity, Christendom, Europe suffered and lost. And we in Africa, who were being protectorates of Europe, suffered terribly as well, of course. So 
the end result of this insane war. But what an opportunity, what a reprieve was given on Christmas 1914. And if they could have just followed through with it. And lock, stock and barrel said, we're going home. This is ridiculous. The governments would have been um, apoplectic, but what could they have done if there was general resistance? But unfortunately, you had some who were ready to shoot down people. The French shot 500 of their men for fraternizing with the enemy. Uh, in fact, this may sound bizarre, because in the film, you actually get the reference, but it's a true story that the French general orders that the cat, Nestor, who's crossing the line between the German line and the French, be shot uh, for treason, for fraternizing with the enemy. Now, the soldiers claimed they couldn't find the cat, uh, so it wasn't done, but the order was given to shoot the cat. That, that, that's how insane they were. And that's, you know, in the film you wonder, is that true? But I've been to Ypres and I've been to all these places and Lionel Rosamond is a good Christian friend of ours who leads frontline tours. And they, he goes around the battle sites and he's been digging up the research. And a person can contact Lionel and say, this is the name of my grandfather or great-grandfather. Can you work out where he fought and so on? And, and he'll track it down and give them a personalized tour to understand where their relatives were. And... Uh, he took me all over Ypres and uh, to places where the Hammonds fought and took me to the other side where the Lindemans fought and are buried in Langemark. Took me to Waterloo where Hammonds and Lindemans fought on both uh, on the same side in the Battle of Waterloo, 1815. Uh, so that was Lionel Rosamond. He's uh, frontline tours. It's not connected with our mission, but it's, it's even the same type setting as our frontline. Um, takes people to battlefronts and a Christian um, giving people tours of the battle sites, and he gave me an in insight into what went on there and shows you where which authors stayed and which trenches and where they were uh, um, cared for when they were injured. And you go into the churches and the basements uh, where there were the medics' places. I must say I was more taken by the First World War than any other because the thing that grieves me about the First World War, it was Christians on both sides. It's very distressing uh, that that could have happened. But duty-oriented people who believed their governments and the governments were lying to them. Well, governments always lie. My history teacher in Bulawayo, Rhys Davies, whose father was a member of Parliament in Britain during the Second World War, who was one of the over 5,000 British people detained without trial by Winston Churchill during the war, which included lords and generals and admirals and members of parliament and house of lords people because they violated something of the, the war act or whatever. And uh, so his father was part of the um, people campaigning against Winston Churchill's uh, things during the Second World War. So Rhys Davies, member of parliament in Rhodesia, our history teacher said, beware the victor's version. He said, you know that the British are lying about us in Rhodesia now. So why would you trust them about what they say about the second, first, or any other war? And in Rhodesia, we knew we have being lied to, lied about, boycotted, couldn't take part in the Olympics, couldn't take part in the Paraplegics Olympics, and Rhodesia was at fought alongside Britain in the First and Second World War and the Korean conflict and the Malayan conflict. And, and now uh, we are being lied to, and yet we were reading the same history books and textbooks and believing them. And the amount of things that I've discovered since, such as the lie that there never was a Christmas truce, and also 
the Russians killed the Polish, the Germans killed the Polish officers in Katyn Forest, not the Russians, or that General Sikorsky died of a plane accident, uh, or all these things that have been proven false, the lies over the years that have gotten dug out and uh, about the Yalta Agreement. And then after 30 years, they unsealed the uh, Operation Keelhaul, the betrayal of 3 million Russians, Ukrainians, and East Europeans into the hands of Stalin's NKVD at the end of the Second World War, most of whom had never lived in Russia. They'd been born in Europe. Their parents had fled from Russia after the Bolshevik Revolution. But by the Yalta Agreement, Churchill and FDR said they ought to be taken back to Stalin. Millions of them are bayonet. This was sealed for 30 years. You couldn't speak about it. came out in 1975. One of the first books I read as a youngster, I was just 15 years old, thinking, how people did that? I thought we were the good guys. And worse was to come as the Lusitania files came out and all the other things. And, and when, uh, well, there's other things still sealed now, like the files of Churchill's correspondence with Roosevelt over the time of the assassination of General Sikorsky, Polish commander-in-chief, they've been sealed for 80 years. Well, sealed for 80 years, it's not going to tell you something good about the government or they would have published it. You don't seal files unless it's hiding some scandal. But the amount of... It took 60 years for GCHQ's decrypts of the Second World War to be unsealed. And as the um, uh, general who wrote the forward for the the Secret War said, this book requires all history books and films in Second World War to be rewritten because it exposes what really happened from the decrypts from the, the GCHQ, the General Coden Cipher School, which uh, literally Park, who were reading all the decrypts of the enemy side. And so you've got a whole history of the war from the official communications that the enemy thought was sacrosanct and safe because of the Enigma codes which couldn't be unscrambled because it was the first computer really. And they didn't know there was now a computer on the other side to read that computer. So these things have uh, caused seismic events amongst historians when established beliefs have been shattered. But I tell you, I had historians swearing blind to me at school, so on. It's a complete fabrication. There never was a Christmas truce in 1914. But the evidence now is so warming, even the British Imperial War Museum has exhibits on it and photographic evidence. But they denied it for decades. And this is, this is the thing. And of course, we've been lied to in this country all the time. The ANC has to lie about the previous regime in order to cover up for their crimes and also to distract people from their present crimes. So you've got to understand why, why governments lie it's primarily to control people and to deceive people and to distract people. So that's why, as Christians and historians, we've got to be willing to dig and to get behind the story. A good question on that. So I, in school, I have no education in the army of the What always told you, or what would have been told in a typical South African education? Well, I didn't get a South African education. Yeah. I got a reduced education. So the Boers were the bad guys and uh, English were the good guys, according to my history books. And I was the one troublemaker in class who kept giving the Boer side. But some of that came from uh, instinct at first at junior school, but already by age 12, I was going to the library and reading books like the first Anglo-Boer War and 
uh, reading um, a commando by Dennis Rayton. So I came to be very pro-Boyle. I had fellow Rhodesians quite angry with me at school because we were arguing about the Anglo-Boyle War because we had the standard British, uh, you know, we had to defend uh, the poor Outlanders uh, being uh, dispossessed in the Rand, and it was just nothing but uh, altruistic motives. And uh, the Boers were just the aggressors. And uh, you think we've all got to live together now. Though? Well, of course. What's the point of? Well, what? Well, because we were lied to for so many years. I know, but why engage with it? I mean, because it's a truth that'll set you free. Yes. The truth is important. Yes, but the truth is what is coming now. To me, anyway, the truth is what is descending now that we should be focusing on, and not wasting time and energy uh, about things in the past that were had, like everything else, a good side and a bad side. Um, which you could argue for absolutely everything. Um, so personally, I think it's a pity to spend a lot of time going over stuff like this and trying to, you know, put one version of history rather than another version of history. It would be better to focus on what we're wanting now and in the future um, and to put our energies into that. And I think we do. Most of our Reformation societies are very much focused on what we can do now. But on occasions like this, as we're approaching Christmas season, looking at this event, which was denied for years, and yet the facts have come out, I think it's most important to actually bring those to the, to the fore. Our present is constructed of the past. Mm-hmm. And understanding of it. Yeah, if, if the foundations are faulty, then we need to fix them, and that's why we need to understand the past so that we can bear the present. Yes. Can anyone identify where this is? This is the Christmas festival in Vienna. Anyone identify where this is? The Louvre. This is the Notre Dame in Paris. Anyone identify where this is? It's Moscow. That's right. St. Basil. So isn't it just magnificent how these great uh, capitals of Europe can be united in celebrating Christmas? It's just one of the great events. And there's, nobody can question it's the greatest holiday of the year. And it's inspired the greatest charity and greatest acts of kindness to strangers in history. And these people are trying to hijack Christmas, trying to secularize Christmas, trying to paganize Christmas, trying to remove it. And I know there's an attempt to replace Christmas and make Halloween the biggest holiday of the year and so on. But they're not going to succeed. Christmas will always have a unique place. And if some people abuse it, shame on them. But that's no reason why we shouldn't make Christmas a major opportunity for evangelism, for charity, for kindness to strangers, and reaching out to our neighbours and and to family members who may be far away. Again, if if enemies in a war can be kind to the men in other trenches, then we can sure be kind to the people next door to us and uh, even reach out to some of our enemies.